Hi everybody, this is Yibing, and you are listening to Limbo Land. In 2014, Brittany Maynard, a 29-year-old woman with terminal brain cancer, moved from California to Oregon to take advantage of the Death with Dignity law. She later ended her life that same year. That was the first time I ever heard about physician-assisted suicide, or had any idea of the concept. Today, I am joined by Dr. Adam Marks. Thank you for being here, Dr. Marks. Of course, thank you, you for like having me. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, at the University of Michigan, I have a couple of different roles. I uh, am a palliative care provider here. I do both adult and pediatric palliative care consults. Um, I'm also、uh, associate director of our training fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine, and I'm a faculty ethicist. And so, I do ethics consultations, both inpatient and outpatient. For people who don't really know, what is palliative care and what is hospice? Great. So, palliative medicine is a subspecialty of medicine for people who are faced with a serious illness. And rather than focusing on a particular illness, my job is to focus on the individual as a whole and ask myself, how can I help this person live as well as they can with that illness? So I often tell people, I'll let your cancer doctor worry about your cancer. I'll let your heart doctor worry about your heart disease. My job is to say, how are you doing today? And so we recognize that a serious illness, be it cancer, heart disease, lung disease, is not just physical. It is emotional, spiritual, and cultural. And so we try to attend to all of those needs that an individual with a serious illness may have. Hospice is a form of palliative care reserved for people at the terminal stages of a disease who opt to forego aggressive medical interventions、um, and instead wish to focus on comfort to allow a natural death to occur. So, hospice is for those who are terminally ill. Palliative care can come much upstream from that. Okay. That's very good to know because I remember struggling with the idea of these two early on in my medical career. Yeah, it's a common, I think, a common struggle. I did want to ask, what is physician-assisted suicide, and who among us is eligible to get? Physician-assisted suicide. Excellent question, and、um, you know, as both a palliative care provider and a medical ethicist, I get to stand on many soapboxes, and so I'll start off by standing on one of them, which is, of course, that the words that we use matter. Physician-assisted suicide, I think, is a term that has fallen a little bit out of favor in medical ethics circles because the term suicide implies a certain degree of mental health concerns, and so more commonly, we're seeing physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying.、Uh, medical aid in dying, of course, implying that not just a physician. Can assist in someone's dying process. So most people are using the term either again physician aid in dying or medical aid in dying. Medical aid in dying, physician aid in dying is a process in which you come to me and you say, Doctor Marks, I have a terminal disease here defined as less than six months, and I wish to hasten my end of life. I go through some evaluation process with you, wherein my job is to determine: Do you have a life? Limiting condition, a terminal disease, and is there any mental pathology like depression that is clouding your judgment? Do you have full mental capacity? If the answer to these things are yes, then I write a prescription for a lethal dose of a medicine. I slide that prescription across the table to you. You take that prescription, you fill it, and you administer it. So my role ends in sliding that prescription across the table to you. That's physician aid in dying. I am aiding in your dying. Now this is in contrast 
And, and it's worth mentioning that when we talk about physician-assisted dying in the United States, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to euthanasia, wherein you come to me and you say, Dr. Marks, I want to die. I go through a similar evaluation process. Are you competent? Are you, in fact, terminally ill? And then I perform an action to instill pathology with the intention of hastening your death. So I inject you with some sort of phenobarbital narcotic compound with the intention of ending your life. That's not legal anywhere in America. Whereas physician aid in dying, physician assisted dying, one in six Americans now has access to. So again, in, in, the, in the U.S. context, it's typically that physician aid in dying that we're discussing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I did read that as of now, there are eight states in Washington, D.C. that have legalized physician aid in dying. That's roughly around 18% of the U.S. population. Also, I did want to touch upon the difference between physician aid in dying and euthanasia. So thank you for clarifying the difference between them, because I do think that it's very easy as a layperson or otherwise to conflate those two. It very much is. And I sometimes I think even for medical professionals, I hear those words sort of used interchangeably. And I again, one of my soapboxes is we ought to be careful about the words that we use, because of course that informs our, um, our discussion around these sensitive topics. So when I was doing research on this, some people who argue against physician aid in dying say that the fundamental concept is not compatible with the physician's role as a quote-unquote healer. And that has to do with the core principles of medical ethics, do no harm, non-maleficence, and beneficence. So how do we reconcile these things? Well, what a great question. And it really does, I think, get at the heart of the core argument around physician aid and dying, which is what is the role of physician in a person's life? Um, you mentioned some of the core principles that medical ethics is based on, and in a very basic way, medical ethics is based on this concept of principalism. We hold these four main principles, right? There's autonomy, that you have the right to say what happens to your body, beneficence, we should only be helping people, non-maleficence, don't harm people, and justice, we should be justly distributing resources as best as we can. And in a probably the simplest way to think about it is that physician aid in dying is sort of autonomy versus beneficence and non-maleficence, that I, as a competent individual, have the right to decide what happens to my body. You know, you as the provider have the duty to help me and not harm me. And so then what, you know, how does physician aid in dying fit into that? And again, it always comes down to the details here. So what do you mean by harm? What do you mean by help? Who gets to decide what that means? And traditionally, you know, before maybe, you know, a hundred years ago or so, it was totally the doctor, right? Super paternalistic. I get to tell you, you adorable little patient, kind of what's the best thing for you. And if you're lucky, I'll inform you. And if you're not, I'll just tell your family because I don't need to tell you anything. Obviously, there's been this huge shift in medical ethics where beneficence is no longer the dominant principle in the majority of cases, and autonomy has become the dominant principle. It doesn't matter what you think is in my best interest, I get to decide. And we often say patients are allowed to make decisions for themselves that we don't agree with. You know, you being, I recommend that you take your metformin for your diabetes. Go to hell. I'm going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go out and, you know, drink, I don't know, 23 milkshakes and go into a diabetic coma. I'm not allowed to stop you. And so from that shift then, of course, has come this idea that 
if people get to decide how they live, does there come a point where they get to decide how they die? And it is tied up in all sorts of interesting societal shifts, one of them being this concept of irrational suicide. Um, whereas kind of before World War II, there was kind of broad acceptance that a competent individual, a rational individual could look at their life and say, this is terrible and I'd rather end it, this concept of irrational suicide. With really the rise of modern psychiatry, we started thinking of suicide only in the context of mental health disorder. And so the only reason a person could want to end their life must be because of some underlying mental pathology. And so why then in the world would we support this action that comes from mental pathology? Again, there's been some shift in that. Whereas we now are starting to conceptualize, yes, a rational individual in a very narrow set of circumstances, right? Terminally ill, may look at their life and deem it not worth living. And so if you are faced with someone who is suffering with a capital S, physical, emotional, spiritual, what have you, and you bring all of your art of medicine to bear to that, and you cannot alleviate it. If this person is saying, I have weighed the risks and the benefits, and as a competent, rational individual, I wish to end my life, what does it mean to help them there? You know, how do we define beneficence in that setting? So that's what it really comes down to, I think, is what we conceptualize as helping. I don't think any physician out there is saying, I'd like to engage in physician aid and dying because I'm tired of helping my patients. It's no, I have a broader conception of that, mm -hmm. of helping my patients beyond simply life prolongation. I do feel that we take precedence in prolonging people's lives. And technology has allowed us to prolong people's lives for far more years than years or decades ago. And because of our technology and our ability to prolong life, herein lies some of the problems that people face when they get to old age, is that, do I want to have all of these interventions? Do I want years of life prolonging assistance with the help of these technologies, or do I want to pass more quickly? And previously, people didn't have that choice, but now people do have that choice. Yeah, more so than ever before. And, you know, I, I also find it interesting that the shift from paternalism to autonomy came about with this explosion of medical complexity. So before when things were easy, it's not your choice, it's my choice to the doctor. Now when things are super complex, guess who gets that burden of decision making? The patient, right? So here are your 22 different technologically complex options for managing your multi-organ failure. Which would you like? Well, I have no idea. Well, it's your choice. Thanks, autonomy. And I worry that in a lot of these situations, there can be this abandonment and patients will report this experience of the burden of decision making. I need your help for these most personal decisions. So all along, right, my heart doctor has told me where to go, what to do. You're going to have this procedure on this day. Then you're going to have this surgery. It's going to be three weeks of recovery. We're going to have you in a subacute rehab facility. And then suddenly it's, well, what do you want? And I, I still need your help. And so I, I think about that a lot in this context of physician aid and dying in the decisions that we force people to make as you identify, right? Because now we have such technology. I feel like there's always more that we can do, but just because we can, should we? And that's, I think, is an individual question that we all have to answer for ourselves at some point. 
our society's conceptualization of suicide has probably affected people's perception of physician aid in dying. Do you have a sense in your field of work of how people normally perceive physician aid in dying outside of medicine? You know, it's so interesting. So, you know, in my role as a palliative care provider, and I should mention that I also work with a local nonprofit hospice agency, I find and I have people that fall just like everything else probably on different parts of the spectrum. So I definitely have people who come to hospice with this terror that I'm going to euthanize them. And actually, let me use a better word, that I'm going to kill them. Because killing implies that I'm ending your life without your permission, right? Euthanasia is where you ask me, please, you know, end my life. And so they're terrified that that's what's going to do, that that's what I'm going to do. And I have to reassure them, let me be clear, my job is to support a natural end of life process. I will not hasten. I will not prolong, but, you know, we'll take every day as it comes. I have other people who are upset when they find out I will not euthanize their loved one because they assume that's what I do. And so I've had people, this just came up not that long ago, someone brought their elderly mother to hospice who had advanced dementia. And we, I was meeting with the family and going through the plan of care, you know, what we would be continuing to provide in the name of comfort. And the son says, so when are you going to, when are you going to get started? And I was like, well, we've already started our hospice plan of care. He's like, no, no, when are you going to, you know, get things moving? And it's not uncommon that I have someone kind of give me a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And so I'm always very explicit about it. Sir, let me be clear. We've begun a comfort-focused plan for your mother. We'll be attending to her symptoms. We don't do anything to hasten the dying process. And he got super pissed at me because he assumed that we would be moving things. Like, you mean we're just going to continue to linger here for weeks and months? Like, that's not what mom wanted. She wanted this over with. And I was like, I'm, I regret to inform you this is up to your mother's body. And we will support that as best as we're able to. And so I think like most things, again, people kind of come down in different ways. I'd say my own personal evolution in this has been engaging in conversations with people who in a very reasonable and rational way say, I've done everything I want to do. You know, I have lived a life that I find valuable, a life of meaning, and I am ready to go. And I'd like to have some say over that because I've sort of seen what the next few weeks or months are going to bring. And, and boy, that seems scary. And so wouldn't it be nice to have this control? And when you look at the data around physician aid and dying, a common theme that comes out of it is this, I'd like to regain a sense of control. And, and it goes so far as that a substantial proportion of people who obtain the prescription for that lethal dose end up not using it. They just feel better having it on hand. And so again, that speaks to more of this existential concern for loss of control and dignity than perhaps um, some physical reality. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you say that you can prescribe them the pill and they will have the pill and the pill encapsulates the control that they have over their future and how they want to die. And even just having a physical pill is reassuring to them and they may not take it, but it's reassuring. And they, But they have it on their nightstand and they have a way out. Because when I talk to people about fear of death, and this is a common conversation that I have with people, typically a couple things come up. Um, one is uh, I'm afraid of what comes after. You know, there's a spiritual concern. A big thing is I'm afraid of 
you know, what's going to happen to my loved ones after I go. So this focus on family. Another major one is I'm afraid of suffering and I'm afraid of loss of dignity. There's a lot of anxiety, anticipatory anxiety that comes around from this dying process. Even though, and I, I go to great lengths to assure people, let me be clear, I can maintain your comfort through a dying process. You know, for what comes, I am confident that you do not have to be in writhing agony. You do not have to be gasping for breath. But people have had their personal experiences with loved ones or they've seen things on the television or on movies and there is this death anxiety. It's not being dead that's scary. It's the getting there part, right? It's the dying, which can be distressing and, and, and people have a lot of that, that fear of. And so, yes, exactly right. I think having the sense of here's my get out of free card if it gets bad is intensely comforting to some people. But as much as there are good things that come out of physician aid in dying and that patients can feel like they have control over their death and how they want to go, there are also problems and certain abuses that can occur with physician aid in dying. Can you tell me a little more about that? Um, I think that there are significant problems with it, very real ones. Um, and you know, if I'm coming across as rosy, I don't know that I necessarily mean to, because I think realistically my position on this is quite ambivalent. The major concerns that people list are sort of the sanctity of life, right? Life is always valuable. It's always meaningful. That doesn't tend to hold a lot of weight with me. I tend to think that the value of life is sort of the things that it contains. And at the end of the day, I strongly believe that only an individual can comment on the quality of their life. So that when we've got data to back this up, right? Outsiders, observers, we are super terrible at guessing somebody's quality of life. This has been shown to be the case in people living with disabilities. That their medical providers say, boy, that guy in a wheelchair, that life looks terrible. And the guy in the wheelchair says, I'm actually pretty happy. So we are bad at that. And I think it's also devaluing to say that life of physical agony is still worth living. You're not the one living it. That sort of speaks a little bit of ableism to me. The stronger arguments, I think, there's one is the slippery slope, right? If we start with physician aid and dying, then it leads to euthanasia and cats and dogs living together. And again, even from sort of an ethical standpoint, I think the concept and the argument of slippery slopes in general is a little problematic so that I should be denying this person in front of me this thing that may help them on the basis of some theoretical future is a little problematic. And so I'm not wild about slippery slope arguments in general. Also, that hasn't really borne out to be the case. Um, you know, we've had physician aid and dying legal uh, for quite some time now, and cats and dogs aren't living together. So good news. I think the biggest argument and the concern that I have, and I said it before, is this concern for abandonment. So in a medical system that is so firmly, fervently, and persistently capitalistic, so our focus right, is on cost and medical expenditures, I worry that if there's an easier way out than a thoughtful, multi-professional you know, intervention to improve your suffering, then rather than bringing to bear high quality palliative care interventions like aggressive symptom control, like meaning-centered psychotherapy, like narrative therapy and dignity therapy for patients and their families, if it's easier for me to slip a prescription across the table, then I'm gonna do it. Because we know again and again, if you give physicians an easy way out, they're gonna take it. And so I could either engage in a multi-week process with you, wherein I bring in a half dozen healthcare professionals or give you a prescription. There's going to be a lot of pressure on the timing of that doctor from insurance companies, whatever, 
for you to take that prescription. So I worry that it will lead to that kind of abandonment. So that's the biggest concern that I have. In my almost 10-year career, I have had plenty of people ask me to hasten their end of life. And always, 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 I interpret it as an expression of suffering. Something is making their life so miserable that they deem it not worth living. Is it physical suffering? Actually, quite the minority. Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Is it a loss of control? Is it some existential suffering? And I don't want to say always, but almost always, with some careful, thoughtful conversation, with this interprofessional exploration and practice, we can identify that suffering and alleviate that suffering. And I've had a couple of very powerful experiences where that's been the case. And the people come on up, thank you so much. That thing that was making me want to end my life is no longer there. I now find meaning in my continued existence. And if I'd had an easier way out, you know, and I was in a different practice where I've got 30 minutes to see every patient or 15 minutes and I've got, you know, don't have the kind of supports I need, would I feel pressured to do something different? The answer is maybe. And that's a real concern. I think when you look at the countries that do this well, there is a strong and powerful primary care base, right, which America does not have. They tend to be primarily singer payer systems. So some of those pressures are different. You know, I might feel that the philosophical underpinnings more lean me towards this autonomy-based, you know, physician aid and dying is a reasonable thing. Boy, from this practical standpoint, I don't know that we could do it well. And I don't know that we could do it to such a degree that these, I don't want to say abuses, but the implementation of it is free of coercion you know, financial coercion or just this abandonment concern. I think that there are some real structural issues uh, that for physician aid and dying to exist in our current system would need to be resolved before I'd be on, on a bandwagon. The point you made about this whole thing, I think is really interesting because we don't have a very good primary care system here. We don't have enough primary care doctors in this country. And I imagine that for the countries that do this well, they have a lot of primary care doctors. And the primary care doctors hopefully are trained in these conversations as well. You as a palliative care physician can talk to these patients and figure out exactly why they are suffering apart from just the physical. You are trained in being able to do that. Throughout my medical training, we didn't really talk about physician aid in dying. Sure, we did have a session about breaking bad news, but we didn't have any sort of teachings on how to suss out these kind of things from a patient at the end of their life, which is why I wonder if the doctors in this country would have the ability to figure that out as well or as effectively as you do. Yeah, you know, bigger questions, obviously, and it's, you know, as soon as you start pulling on one thread, you know, it, every, you realize how much everything is connected, because you're absolutely right. I think that there is an immense, uh, no surprise, taboo around death in this country, so much so that we are afraid to talk about it, even as professionals, right? At your Thanksgiving dinner, try to engage a conversation about death and dying with your family, and it's going to be like, can't we talk about something more pleasant? Why does this have to be so depressing? And so whenever we have to engage in a taboo, there does have to be some sort of formal, I think, training in um, leaning into the discomfort that comes with breaking a taboo and, and, and conversations around death and dying are no different. You know, it's worth mentioning that when we talk about primary care, its role in 
physician aid and dying. I'm thinking primarily of Amsterdam's model, uh, where the physician aid and dying action primarily rests in the primary care provider, and the majority of people have years or decades long relationships with those people. And so when you are going to your primary care provider, this is someone who intimately knows you, knows your family, knows your situation. And so, you know, you could certainly make that argument is much better situated to engage in a, you know, thoughtful conversation, taking in lots of different aspects of your care versus our, I don't want to shock you, fragmented healthcare system where, like, you know, show me the person that's had a doctor or even a primary care doctor for more than a few years. I mean, I'm certainly not one of them. Um, you know, I've had to change primary care doctors as they, you know, change their practices and, and whatnot and whatnot. And then, of course, you don't just have your primary care doctor. You've got your oncologist and your heart doctor and your renal doctor and holy cow. You know, trying to develop that thoughtful relationship is a real challenge, which again, I say that in full irony as a subspecialist, you know, gave rise to the need for palliative medicine to have someone who has that specialized training in some of these more difficult conversations. Yeah, I think that's a deeper issue that can't be fixed overnight. And it has to start with people wanting to go into primary care. But also there's a huge pay discrepancy between primary care and other specialties. And when you go into medical school and you graduate with $250,000 in debt, and you think, where do I imagine my future in a decade, two decades, three decades? Do I want to go into a field that pays for times less than this other field when I have the same qualifications to go into either one. And which one has a better quality of life? And which one better meshes with my desire to have a family and to do these other things that are important? 100%. Again, those systems pressures are immense and, you know, frankly work against, I think, in an equitable uh, healthcare system. The other thing I want to talk about is the image of the physician. In our country, there have been so many unethical things that have happened in medicine that has unfortunately placed less trust in us as physicians, whereas other countries don't quite have that same problem. Do you think that if physician aid in dying is more widely accepted in this country that it would negatively affect our image. Yeah, boy, I've sure have heard that. Um, that gosh, you know, if physicians engage in this practice, then no one will go to physicians again. Something that hasn't been borne out, right? And so the physicians in Washington state still have the trust of their patients, as much as I believe um, the physicians in other states. So I don't believe there's any data that there has been sort of this erosion of professionalism. I think, you know, again, in my line of work, and I think that there's some selection bias here, my concern is exactly for the opposite, right? You, you sons of bitches, you're going to keep me alive as long as possible. Look what they did to my mother in the ICU. Like, no one is looking at her. You're only looking at these diseases. And so being able to meet someone where they're at and to say, time out, you get to stay in control. You know, you get to have a say in how your health care moves forward. Almost everyone I've met even outside of the context of physician aid and dying, but when we go to them and they say, this is about keeping your voice at the center of this, oh my gosh, do they love it. If anything, I, I think that's a theoretical risk that hasn't been borne out. I think the opposite argument could be made that if people have this message of, you stay in control. You don't have to worry about being admitted to the hospital and losing that control. Because holy cow, do I hear a lot of people who say that especially with some of our vulnerable populations, right? People who the 
medical profession does not have the best history of treating well. Um, there's this idea that, um, you know, the doctors won't listen to me. I'll be a guinea pig. Um, so again, I think if there is more of this emphasis on autonomy, that could undermine that. Now, at the same time, we know that vulnerable populations have an immense amount of distrust. And some of that is, you're going to abandon me. You're going to let me die. Not so much the, you know, you're going to not allow me to receive the care I want. But if I'm asking to live, you're going to kill me anyways. So they're not afraid of physician aid and dying or euthanasia. They're afraid of killing which I think is a subtle, again, but important distinction. And so when I'm dealing with people who historically have not been treated well, African-American populations, LGBTQ populations, uh, Americans with disabilities, there is this concern of, are you giving me the best care? Is there other, are there other things available to me that you're not sharing with me because I'm somehow othered to you? That's the bigger concern that I hear from them, um, rather than this fear of, uh, some sort of institutional physician aid in dying. It's it's interesting that you say that there's this other paradigm, because again, as a layperson, when you hear about physician aid in dying, oh my God, you think about the idea of Dr. Death. In reality, when you're actually talking to these patients and putting control back into their ballpark, rather than we're treating this and this and we're putting you on this ventilator and doing this and that. That's that's really overwhelming for patients. I recently had a very poignant experience in a family meeting and it was truly eye-opening in that we were focusing on what the patient would have wanted. And what he would have wanted during his life was not to be put on a ventilator was not to have feeding tubes and his loved one was having a lot of trouble and she she had to make a lot of decisions and we weren't telling her which way to go which again I think did make her feel abandoned and because she had no idea what to do right so throughout the day it would be yes, I want comfort care for him. No, I want more medical intervention. And it would flip-flop by the hour. And the family meeting was so helpful because in the end, we said, we want to let this patient's body decide where it wants to take us. And the decision to do this doesn't mean that you are abandoning him. It just means that his body is guiding us in 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 his care yeah it's so interesting we talk about you know i talk about in palliative medicine to shift gears a little bit just because you brought it up um we talk about engaging in value-based decision making right so the question isn't do you want a feeding tube do you want to be full code do you want chest compressions do you want intubation do you want to be cardioverted to 80 joules or 120 joules because that obviously gets super confusing and and those are kind of i use the term false decisions for families what is much more important is you know, as you say, if your loved one were sitting in this room, what do you think they'd have to say about the care that they're receiving? And what would they hope for this care to achieve? And if they say, oh my gosh, and this came up in a meeting not that long ago too, a family said, boy, if mom were in this room, she'd be pissed. Like she would not like any of this. Well, then we should ask ourselves, why are we doing it? And if somebody says, you know, my, my, my hope is that when my husband's time, it can be done peacefully and naturally. Well, guess what? Now I have a value that I can make recommendations. And so I can alleviate that if that's your larger goal, 
then we should put everything in that context. Will it get me closer to or farther away from that goal? So I recommend we make your loved one a do not resuscitate. I do not recommend that we pursue a feeding tube. All these decisions become much more simple. And it, again, it allows us to make these recommendations as opposed to this menu of, well, what would you like? <laughs> Which I think is absolutely overwhelming for people. Because your ability to engage in intellectual decision-making does not improve during times of stress. Mm -mm. Um, and this is, again, toward trainees, I often tell them, please recognize that we are often meeting people on the worst days of their lives. Um, and so don't expect a lot of sort of, quote-unquote, rational decision-making. So it's a big challenge. But I'm so, again, pleased that you were able to see a, a, a meeting go well. Me too. It was a very eye-opening experience. <laughs> yeah. And, and to bring it back to the conversation, again, when I have someone who asks for a hasten end of life, it is almost always this emotional statement, right? Uh, and the, the emotion there is I'm frustrated, I'm scared, I feel abandoned, I feel alone, I feel out of control. And so let's explore that emotion, what is making you feel that way, and how can we give you that back? And again, I've had very you know, powerful experiences with people around that. And you know, the other argument to physician aid and dying is that you don't know what meaning you might elicit from a life that doesn't appear to have value, right? And so you can imagine somebody who is suffering from debility because of, let's say, some progressive neurologic illness, and they say, this has no value, I want to die. But lo and behold, you know, while they are declining, they discover a renewed connection with their loved ones who are participating in the care that they wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And many care Many caregivers, many survivors of people who have died will talk about these moments of grace that they discovered and did not anticipate in the context of this decline. And so a reasonable argument is to say, well, are we robbing people of that? The answer is maybe. But again, I kind of get back to this, but who gets to decide about that balance of you know the potential indignities and suffering versus the potential for these moments of grace? I sort of feel push comes to shove that only you as the individual have the right to decide how to value those things. <laughs> <laughs>